Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, let's... Take a few moments for silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. The use of 1 John 1.9 means to simply admit or acknowledge to God that our, the sins that we know were instantly forgiven, cleansed. We recover the, fellowship of the, uh, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit that we may resume our spiritual advance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we may gain a greater appreciation of how you work in your control of human history and the intricacies and the subtleties of your control and your plan and how all things come together in the end. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have been given such a magnificent revelation of your plans and your purposes, and especially of our so great salvation. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray you challenge us with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I got cranked up and didn't do the announcements, so a couple of announcements. If you get home in time tonight at 9 o'clock, there's a show on MSNBC, Scarborough Country, and Tommy Ice is going to be interviewed about uh, this show that I think ABC is putting on called Revelations. And when Tommy called me today, I said, well, what's the show about, Tommy? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I don't either. So, but it's some kind of cranked up Hollywood, uh, thing on the end of the, end of the world. So they've got a couple of, they wanted to get LaHaye, and LaHaye couldn't do it, so he suggested Tommy. Second announcement, prep school meeting this Saturday, April 16th, will meet at 10 o'clock, North Wing. Uh, third, don't forget the Prophecy Conference beginning on Thursday, April 28th. And the schedule on the 28th and 29th will be that we start at 7.30, promptly at 7.30, and we'll finish at 9.30. And then on Saturday, the schedule is 9 to 3 with an hour and a half break at lunch. Also, we have, we're zeroing in on a piece of property. And we have gone through a lot of initial investigation. We have... Uh, had a number of people in the congregation who've gone by and looked at it, uh, and we have uh, had an architect look at it. He's drawn up some uh, his initial proposals, so I'd encourage you to uh, go by and look at it. We're going to have uh, have it open at three o'clock from about three to five on Sunday afternoon. The address is 14655 North. West Freeway, that's 290, 14655. You go down, take the get, if you're coming from town, you go out, take the Gessner exit, you turn, it's the first strip center on your right, 
you turn into the strip center and you kind of go around the south or the east side of that strip center and it's around the corner about the third or fourth door. So that's, uh, we'll make more announcements on that, but I think we're, we're getting down to uh, nut cutting time, as they say. So we need to make some decisions. And I want the congregation to be fully informed, think it through, and we will uh, have a congregational meeting and discuss all of this. And we're crafting some proposals. We've got to find out just what kind of a lease bid we can get on this thing. But it looks very good. This has been a church before, so it's, most of it's already built out. Some work needs to be done, but it's, uh, it's really exciting, so take a look at it. That's it for announcements. Open your Bibles to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 17 to 24. Tonight we want to look at the priestly order of Melchizedek. The priestly order of Melchizedek. And since we spent the last three classes in this series on a subject doctrine, the doctrine of tithing and giving, we need to get back into the flow of this particular text. Genesis 14:17, we have the welcome committee to Abram when he returns with his uh, servants along with his allies to uh, back into the land he has. He followed the invading armies of the four kings under the Keterleomer alliance north of Dan, and there he destroyed them and defeated their armies and captured all the spoils that they had taken, all the plunder that they had taken, and he is now returning with all of the captives and with all of the uh, plunder. And in verse 17, we're told that the first person to come out to meet him actually is the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. And this has got to go down in history as one of the most bizarre meetings in all of history. Here we have Abram returning from the battle, a man that is a maturing believer. He is called the friend of God. He is the father of the Jewish race. And he is being met by the reprobate, perverted uh, king of Sodom, whose name is Bera. And he is also being met, as we'll see in verse 18, by a man who is at the opposite end of the spectrum from Bera, the king of Sodom, and that is Melchizedek, the king of Shalem, as it is in the Hebrew. Uh, it's usually translated simply uh, Salem. This is an early name for Jerusalem. If you look at, I think it's Psalm 110, uh, 1, there's a parallel between, a synonymous parallelism between Zion and Shalem, indicating that they are the same place. Now, in contrast to the empty-handed king of Sodom, note that, he comes out to meet Abram, and he has nothing with him. He comes empty-handed, and what he's looking for, we find, is he just wants to get his people back and perhaps some slaves and work a deal. And in contrast to the empty-handed pervert, you have the generous Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is coming with bread and wine. Now, there's a lot of folks who try to uh, read into this some sort of covenantal meal, or they try to read into this some sort of uh, allusion to the 
Lord's table, but the, the text nowhere makes an issue out of the bread and wine. It just seems that this, this fits ancient Near Eastern practices where the troops are coming home and you're going out to welcome them with a welcoming committee and so you're bringing uh, food and refreshment to them and sustenance for them after the battle. And so Melchizedek is thinking in terms of the needs of, of Abram and his uh, allies and, he's, and his servants, and he's not thinking in terms of what he's going to get out of it. So he is generous. He is a picture of grace orientation. And the grammar of the passage indicates it should, it's translated in uh, some versions as, as uh, then, which is what we have up on the screen, which is New King James, and that is inadequate. It should be an and. This is not a... He's not first met by the king of Sodom and then met by Melchizedek. They come out together. The Hebrew indicates that it takes place at the same time. So the two kings come out to greet Abram at the same time. Uh, Bera is coming empty-handed, looking for what he's going to get out of it. And Melchizedek comes in order to, in order to give something. And this is brought out, as a matter of fact, by the conjunction at the beginning of the passage uh, that we have translated. It's not a then. I just made a, made a mistake. I said it should be translated an and. It has, that, it has the sense of, of happening at the same time. But what it actually should read is a contrast. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. But Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. It happens at the same time. However, there is a contrast brought out in the text. In the Hebrew, uh, if you want to have a contrast, then you put the conjunction with a noun instead of with the verb at the beginning of the sentence. And so you have a vav, which is the Hebrew conjunction. You have a vav, noun, verb, uh, construction here, so that indicates a contrast. So corrected translation of verse 18 should read, but Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. There is the contrast between his generosity and grace orientation versus the lack of such on the part of the king of Sodom. Now we're introduced to this somewhat enigmatic figure in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. And what is so tremendous about this is as we go through the narrative in Genesis, and we just are marching our way through one chapter after another, uh, maybe marching isn't the best word, somebody's looking at me like it should be crawling through one chapter after another, there is all of a sudden this meeting with Melchizedek, and he's mentioned in about three verses, and then we move on, and we never hear from him again until we get to Psalm 110.1. And I think I mentioned that a minute ago on, uh, on a parallelism with uh, Salem, and I, I failed to write down the reference on that. Um, may run into it again in a minute. But Psalm 110.1 and, and 4 is where we once again get an indication of the significance and an interpretation of the significance of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.1 says, Then then the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And then Psalm 110.4 says, You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And those two verses are some of the most oft-quoted verses in Hebrews. 
And they all tie in to helping us understand that this little episode that we tend to just, you can tend to just kind of pass over in these two or three verses in Genesis really sets the stage and the foundation for understanding the present time priestly, royal priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes right back to this person, Melchizedek. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7, the entire structure of the argument in those two chapters is built upon the fact that Jesus Christ is called a priest, designated a priest, not after the order of the Levites and the Mosaic Law, but after the order of Melchizedek. So we have to understand something about Melchizedek because it helps us understand who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in this dispensation. And one of the fantastic things about this is it shows how God is working behind the scenes in history. Abram has no idea what is what the bigger picture is in this meeting meeting with Melchizedek. And nobody else does at that time. It's not until you get this mention of the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 and then in the New Testament you get it fleshed out in, in Hebrews 5 and 7 that you understand its significance. But this meeting that takes place is designed by God the Father in history in order to picture for us a tremendous event that is transpiring in history at that particular point. And it has a theological significance and a spiritual significance that goes far beyond what's actually happening physically at that time. And a point of application here is that most of the time we don't understand what God is doing in our own life. We're too close to it. We don't see the dynamics. But nevertheless, we can see from this instance as well as uh, dozens or hundreds of others in Scripture that God is working behind the scenes in an incredible way to produce his desired outcome in history. It is just another reaffirmation that all these books in the Bible just didn't happen haphazardly. They're not just the product of man's imagination, but they are all inspired by God, and they integrate with one another, and they tie together, even though they've been written over a 2,000-year period of time by over 50 different authors. There's no contradiction. There's no discrepancy. And things that happen in one book mentioned by one author are then brought out and developed, and God the Holy Spirit gives them uh, new application in other places. So it's just a remarkable thing to witness. To understand Melchizedek, we must understand that uh, all we have is just a couple of verses here that mention him, verse 18 and verse 19. There are three suggestions for the term or the name or title Melchizedek. The first is, that the meaning is my king is Sadiq, and Sadiq is the Hebrew word for righteous. So this would be translated, my king is righteous. A second meaning is that Milku, which would be a title of maybe some pagan deity, is righteous. That's suggested by some. But the correct meaning of the name is king of righteousness. Melech is the Hebrew word meaning king. When you add the I on the end of that, that makes it a genitive, and so that would be the king of, and then you have tzedek, which is the last 
a part of the name which is from the root sadak, meaning to be righteous. So it is the and the noun means righteousness. So it means king of righteousness. So there is this contrast between the king of perversion on the one hand and the king of righteousness on the other hand. We know that this is not his proper name, but that this is a title because of Joshua 10, verse 1. In Joshua 10, 1, we run into a king in Jerusalem whose name is Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek, and of course we all know that the word Adonai means Lord or my Lord, and it means the same thing. It means the Lord of Righteousness. And later on, when David is the king, he has a faithful priest named Zadok. And Zadok's name comes from this same root, uh, Zedek, meaning righteousness. So that this is a name or title that, that is passed on for royalty and priests throughout that period in Israel's history. So we should understand this as a title, that it's not that his name, this is his name, but this is a title, uh, King of Righteousness. Now, his identity is not revealed in Scripture. We really don't know who he is, but I think we can have a pretty good idea. Some people think that this is a theophany, though, and I just want to point out a few things. You run into this a lot. And we have to answer this because in Hebrews 5, it says that he's without father, without mother, uh, with no genealogy, and he is, and it's like the Lord Jesus Christ. So some people think that, well, that, they take that literally to mean that, well, Melchizedek didn't have a mother or father, so it must be a theophany, must be the pre-incarnate Christ. However, there are a number of things that uh, prevent us from taking that interpretation. First of all, a theophany is a, we must understand what a theophany is. It's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. From the Greek word theos, meaning God, and phoneo, the, uh, the verb phoneo, meaning to appear, to manifest. It's a manifestation or appearance of God. You also have another term called a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ, and that's what's used after the resurrection. Theophany is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Remember John uh, 1.18 was told that no man has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. So the Father doesn't reveal himself in the Old Testament. In all of these appearances of God, it's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing we must recognize is that theophanies are always referred to by a title of deity within the context of of the passage or somewhere else. For example, when you have the angel of the Lord appear to uh, Gideon in Judges chapter 6, Gideon addresses the angel of the Lord by the title Yahweh. You have the same thing that happens in Genesis, and we'll see when we get to the episode when Hagar is kicked out of the house by uh, Sarah and Abram that she goes out in the wilderness and the angel of the Lord appears to her and she refers to the angel of the Lord as Yahweh. So when you have these other theophanies in Scripture, somewhere in the text there is a reference to that individual by the name God. So the Scripture doesn't leave us to guess about who this is. Third point, theophanies are not given different names. They're not given formal names. Their, their names are titles of deity, such as the angel of the Lord. Uh, 
And we say, or we say the Lord appeared in the burning bush, things of that nature. But here we have this individual with a title, Melchizedek. And so that's a formal title that's assigned to him, and that is not uh, something that is characteristic of a theophany. So they're not given a formal name or a formal title, we could say. Point number four, Melchizedek is said to be the ruler or the king in Shalem. He is royalty. Thus, he's not a theophany. If he were, if this is the Lord Jesus Christ, then we would have to say that the Lord Jesus Christ was a ruler for a period of time of history over several decades, if not hundred years or more, in Salem. And that doesn't fit. Theophanies were just temporary appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ for purposes of communicating uh, special revelation in the Old, Old Testament. So, uh, once again, this would uh, argue against this being an appearance of uh, the pre-incarnate Christ. And again, I think I repeated myself. Theophanies don't have a specific formal name such as Melchizedek. That's a repetition of the other point. Point six, rabbinic tradition in the Mishnah. This is fascinating. I've held this position for years, but due to research I've done recently, I've just discovered that it's a stronger case than I ever thought. I've always known that ancient Jewish tradition identified Melchizedek as Shem, but in recent discoveries I've realized that the Mishnah, which was the collected writings and sayings of the rabbis at the time of Christ, the Talmud, which was the later rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah is what the Pharisees quoted at the time of Christ. Talmud was the commentaries on the Mishnah. The Midrash were commentaries written on the Scripture. And other rabbinic writings up into the Middle Ages are unanimous. Now, that's a powerful witness right there. They're unanimous in identifying Melchizedek as a historical figure, Shem, the son of Noah. Now, we can't rely upon that like we can on Scripture because the Scripture doesn't make that point. But what's interesting is that if this is Shem, who is the one identified by Noah as the one, blessed be the God of Shem, that we studied back in Genesis chapter 9 after they came off the ark, now it is Shem who is saying, blessed is Abraham. The spiritual blessing that Noah passes to to Shem is now being passed from Shem to Abram and to Abram's descendants. And that is remarkable because it reinforces the dispensational shift that is taking place in these chapters. Now, when we've talked about Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we usually talk about that as the Abrahamic covenant. And, but that really is God's mandate to Abram to get out of his country and to go to the land that he's going to show him where he will make his name great and he will have numerous descendants and God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. That's the foundation for the Abrahamic covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant really isn't cut. That was, that's the literal Hebrew word. It means, it's the verb karat, which means to literally to cut a covenant. And it has to do with the fact that whenever you sealed a covenant in the ancient world, you sacrificed an animal. Just imagine what that would be like today. You go down, you want to buy a house, you want to sign the contract, that means you have to go get a, 
sheep or a goat, you have to come back and you have to have a sacrifice in order to sign the covenant. It sort of emphasizes the seriousness of what you're doing. You're taking a life in the process of establishing that, that covenant. Well, that's what happens in Genesis chapter 15. So Genesis 15, Genesis 17 are the two chapters where the Mosaic, I mean, where the Abrahamic covenant is formally established and ratified. What happens just prior to that? See, as soon as we get done with tonight, we'll just right, roll right into Genesis 15 where we have the initial ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. And so right before that happens, we have, as it were, the passing of the torch from Melchizedek, who clearly represents, even if it's not Shem, he clearly represents the Noahic civilization worship of God because he worships El Elyon, the mighty God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And that title is significant. He uses it, Abraham uses it, and we are told in a couple of verses that... that um, Yahweh is the identical, it's the same name for El Elyon. So El Elyon, as it were, is the uh, title used by Gentiles in the worship of God. Whereas Yahweh, which is the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is associated with the giving of the uh, Abrahamic covenant and specifically the Mosaic covenant to Israel. That is a name that to a Jew indicates covenantal loyalty and the God of the covenant. In fact, a Jew never uses that name. In, in, uh, at, at one point in time, they would, whenever they would read, the, see the sacred tetragrammeter in the text, instead of reading Yahweh, they would read Adonai. And in fact, what you have in the, in the Hebrew text is you have your Four letters, that's what tetragrammaton means, is four letters. Uh, You'd have your four letters without any vowel pointing, which was added later by the Masoretes. But then they added the um, vowel pointing of Adonai to that, so that that would remind the reader that instead of reading Yahweh, you were supposed to read Adonai. Well, then English readers came along, and they took this compound word, the consonants from one Hebrew word, Yahweh, the vowels from another Hebrew word, Adonai, and they developed a word that looked like this. They took the Y, and they made it a J. This was, they transliterated as an E. Then you have an H, and then this is a... An O, the Vav they transliterated as a V, and then they had a closing, well that would be a patat there, so they made that an A and a closing H, and so you get this word Jehovah. You see, Jehovah is a nonsense word. It doesn't refer to anything. Because God's name wasn't Jehovah, it was Yahweh. Jehovah is just a made-up word that it has the consonants from one Hebrew word plus the vowels from another Hebrew word. So Jehovah is a meaningless term. And I have a uh, friend of mine, Dr. Wayne House, who teaches up at Oregon Seminary and uh, Faith Seminary. And he has a lot of... Uh, Pastors that come in and they start praying and they start in their prayers they'll refer to Jehovah and he'll stop them and say, "You're not praying to anybody if you mention Jehovah. 
Who is Jehovah? There's no such person. That's not God. He really drives the point home, really frustrates them, but they get the point. And that's something you can use when somebody knocks on your door some Saturday morning and they want to uh, uh, talk to you about the gospel. You can say, well, you're a witness to who? That's a nonsense name. Don't you know that? I always like that. One of the greatest, you know, we all have regrets in life. One of my regrets is that one day I was sitting in my, my home in Irving, Texas, and I was playing host to... Dave Hunt and Tommy Ice, who were in town. Dave Hunt has written about 30 different books, usually dealing with apologetics and cults and things of that nature. And uh, Harry Leaf, who was from a pastoring church here in Houston. And they were all in my house, and we were just getting ready to go to a debate. Tommy and Dave Hunt were debating a couple of Christian Reconstructionists, and the doorbell rang. And it was a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I would have just loved to have seen what would happen was take a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses with, with those three people. But we were running late to the debate, so the Lord was just teasing us, I guess. Anyhow, rabbinic tradition identifies Shem as Melchizedek. And that this is further indicated, as I said, before we got off on our rabbit trail, by the title El Elyon. And, uh, oh, another thing I was going to point out is that today what you usually find with Jews is instead of reading Adonai, they simply refer to God as Hashem. Because Shem also means name in Hebrew, and the Ha is the is the article, so Hashem is the name. So whenever they see Yahweh now, the uh, convention is to read Hashem. Now, as I pointed out, Melchizedek's actual identity is not mentioned, but his significance is that you have a Gentile royal priest who now blesses the, the head of the Jewish race. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to come along and do is to say that this shows that Abram is inferior to Shem, I mean to, to Melchizedek. Abram is inferior to Melchizedek because he receives a blessing from Melchizedek. That shows that, Mel, that he viewed Melchizedek as his spiritual superior. Because Abram... Now catch this, because Abram is inferior to Melchizedek, anyone who is born from Abraham, any of his descendants, are by virtue of their coming from Abraham also inferior to Melchizedek. Simple argument. If Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek, Abraham's children are inferior to Melchizedek. And his great-grandchildren include the the twelve sons of, of Jacob, including Levi. Therefore, if Levi, as a descendant of Abram, is inferior to Melchizedek, then the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Do you follow that? If Abram is inferior to Melchizedek, then Levi would also be 
inferior to Melchizedek, and the Levitical priesthood would be an inferior priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And this is what the writer of Hebrews picks up on. It's really a very simple argument. People get all caught up in a lot of, a lot of details, but what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue through this is that this shows that Jesus had to be a priest after, the, he couldn't be a priest after the order of Levi because that would limit his priesthood to, to Israel. It would limit his priesthood to Israel. Furthermore, Jesus Christ could not have been a priest after the uh, order of Levi, couldn't have been a Levitical priest, because he wasn't born from the tribe of Levi. He is born as the greater son of David of the tribe of Judah. And because he comes from Judah, he's not qualified to be a priest to Israel. But because he flows from a greater priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, He can be a priest to all nations. The priesthood of Melchizedek is a priesthood that is based on regeneration and your spiritual condition, whereas the the Levitical priesthood had to do with your tribal birth, your genealogy. The only qualification you had to meet to be a Levitical priest was to be born in the tribe of Levi. There are no spiritual qualifications listed. You don't have to be saved. You don't have to be in fellowship. You don't have to be anything. You just have to go through the ritual. But to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you have to be regenerate. And so the Melchizedekian priesthood as a Gentile priesthood is a priesthood for all the nations, whereas the Jewish priesthood is limited. So what God is doing here in this event is laying the foundation 2,000 years before Christ for the unique royal priesthood that Jesus Christ is going to practice in the church age. And that lays the foundation for the priesthood, the royal priesthood of every believer in the church age. So this is what we see with... Um, with Melchizedek. He is a priest of God Most High. Priest of God Most High. And the term that is used here, that is translated God Most High, is the title El Elyon. And El is simply the generic name for God much like we use the term G-O-D. That was the term. In fact, L was a term applied to the uh, top deity in the Canaanite pantheon. And Elion repeats that initial prefix L and adds a suffix which indicates that he is the greatest. It is, it is a superlative indicating that he is the most high God. You can read that, Most High God. So he is priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, variously translated by different people as God the Almighty God. Some translate it as God the Most High. Or one Jewish writer translates it, the Mighty One who is Supreme over all. Uh, but the best, probably the most uh, accurate Translation is simply referred to as the Most High God. This was the uh, definition given by one of the great rabbis in Jewish history who goes by the acronym or, uh, of Rambam. Rambam. 
Moses ben uh, Nachmanides. You know, the rabbis had a whole series of, of uh, nicknames that they gave their rabbis. Instead of writing everything out, they'd call them Rambam was a rabbi, Moses ben Maimonides, and Ramban is uh, Rabbi Moses ben Nachmanides. And then you have Rashban and Rashi and a lot of other abbreviations. Sounds kind of foreign to our ears, but this is how they refer to their uh, great rabbis. Most of these men lived between the uh, 11th and 12th century A.D. and really formalized what is now known as uh, modern Judaism. And what's interesting, though, I enjoy going back and reading through their material because many of these men had a view of interpretation that was akin to our literal grammatical historical view of interpretation. And so you pick up a certain amount of insights from them that you don't get somewhere else, but you always have to be careful because since by that time they've rejected Christianity and rejected the New Testament, they go in and try to uh, reinterpret certain Old Testament texts in order to avoid their... Uh, messianic implications in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High who is the possessor of heaven and earth. The uh, possessor of heaven and earth. Let me get back to our 17, 18. Okay. Get through these slides. Possessor of heaven and earth is the cow participle kana, which has the idea of acquiring, buying, or purchasing something. And it is the idea that God is the one who owns everything. God is the one who owns everything. Genesis 14:19. we read, I guess I left that verse out of the slide. In Genesis 14:19, we read, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, Abram, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And I want you to note that the text doesn't say, and he blessed him, saying. Some translations do that. Uh, Literally in the Hebrew it says, and he blessed him and said. He did two things. He blessed him and he said. And the word for blessing here at the beginning, and he blessed him, is vi bar Vai Barakehu, which is the P.L. imperfect of Barak. Uh, Barak. In, the, uh, nom- in a noun form, it is uh, Baraka, which means blessing. And in Second Chronicles, it refers to the valley of Baraka, or Baraka, as some people have anglicized it. So this is that word, Barak, which means to bless. And the P.L. imperfect is the intensified stem. And here we see that Melchizedek blessed Abram. And the word blessing means in the cow stem to kneel down or to praise. And it comes to mean in the PL stem to bless. And the idea here is that what you see is Melchizedek first praises Abram for what he has done in his grace orientation. Remember we studied this, that that was a test of Abram when the 
uh, four kings invaded, was he going to be grace-oriented and generous enough to be a blessing to his neighbors and go and deliver them from the invading army? And so Melchizedek praises him for what he has done and what he has accomplished. And then he shifts from what Abram did in his spiritual life to the God who supplied the victory. So he starts with what Abram did, and then he goes to the source of Abram's victory. He says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon again, possessor of heaven and earth. So he begins, first off, with a statement of praise for what Abram did, and then he moves from there to a statement of of, praise. Praise for the God who provided that victory. Now, I saw something today that I thought of in terms of an application of this that actually it was a failure to apply this principle. And it took place at a funeral. At a funeral, too often what you find is that you come into a funeral and they spend all of the time talking about the accomplishments of the individual and how much everybody loved him. They tell a lot of wonderful stories about the particular individual. And uh, little, if anything, is ever said about what really made that individual great, especially if they were a, a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning I had the privilege of attending a funeral for a man I didn't really know that well, I first met him when we were wet behind the years college students in ROTC about 30, 34 years ago. And he only spent a couple of semesters at Stephen F. before he uh, decided to quit college and join the Army. And I really didn't get back in contact with him until a couple of years ago. Uh, I found out that he had served on a Special Forces A-team with Gene Brown back in the 70s. And so we managed to reconnect, and we spent a little time talking on the telephone. Well, he had a 31-year career in the Army and uh, reached at retirement. He was a brigade command sergeant major. And they had a list today of all of his accomplishments in the military. And I don't think I've ever known anybody who has had as many qualifications or who had gone through as many schools as he had. And I asked Gene that today. I said, you know anybody who has, has done this much? He said, no. You know, he never got married, didn't have any kids. He was a warrior's warrior. And all the testimonials today demonstrated that. And unfortunately, they spent all of their time on all the testimonials, except one guy managed to barely squeeze the gospel in. And the pastor that they had who who gave the lesson, did not move from what he accomplished in terms of his physical assets and abilities to the real great thing in his life. And that was that there were a number of believers who served on that Special Forces A-team along with him and Gene Brown who introduced him to the importance of Bible doctrine in his life. And he was true, he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he was a faithful attender of Bible class every night for years and nobody made a point out of that, and that's what made uh, Al Habelman the, the tremendous individual that he was because all the testimonies revealed a guy who, was a, who really understood the purpose of the military and a man that was truly grace-oriented and understood what that meant. And uh, Gene told me a few stories about how he had to drill authority orientation in him when he was a young buck sergeant. And I thought, you know, I remember knowing him when we were both young and dumb and trying to figure out what we were going to be in life. And here he accomplished a tremendous amount. But the really important thing that he accomplished was what he accomplished in his spiritual life. And that wasn't mentioned 
at the funeral. And that's what made everything else happen. That's what made everything else tick. It's what happens in our spiritual life. It wasn't that Abram went up there and defeated the enemies. It was why he did it. He did it because he was grace-oriented and he was operating under the command of God to be a blessing to those around him. And this is what Melchizedek is recognizing in verse 19. He blessed him or praised him for what he had done and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And then in verse 20, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And a lot of people stumble over this and say, We can understand how God can bless us because we want to take blessing and make it this material sort of thing, which it is sometimes, but not always. How do we bless God, though? God exists. He's the self-existent one. He doesn't need anything. How can we give him anything? And really we have to understand the nuance of blessing here is praise. And praise be God. We render thanks to God because of what he has done for us. That praise to God is a, an attitude where we express our gratefulness for everything that God has done for him. And this is what is at the core of this whole episode is grace orientation and the gratitude that is demonstrated by Abraham toward, toward God for the Abrahamic covenant. As a result of what God's given him, he is able to go out and be a blessing to others around him. And he understands that. And because of what God does in giving him victory, then Melchizedek comes out and blesses Abraham and passes on the blessing that is handed down from Noah. And as a result of that, then Abram expresses his gratitude and he gives a tithe of all the spoils, as we studied last time, to Melchizedek. And we spent three weeks studying tithing and giving, so we don't need to study that tonight. Genesis 14.21, Now the king of Sodom, and here we have another contrast, but the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Notice how Melchizedek blesses him, puts all the focus on God, the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and the king of Sodom puts all the focus on what he's going to get out of it. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Just let me get something out of this victory. I got defeated. I was a failure in the military. But just give me uh, what I can get out of this. And in verse 22, Abram gives a, shows a tremendous principle in terms of giving, and he, and he shows something else that's important here. He, we read in verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Notice, again, we see this emphasis on El Elyon, the owner or possessor of heaven and earth. Abram declines the author, the offer. But what we notice here is that Abram is prepared for the offer. See, Abram isn't just kind of bouncing through life, so thinking, well, God's just going to take care of things for me. He recognizes he has to think, he has to plan, he has to think in terms of what might happen. See, this is a mark of a good leader. A good leader thinks in terms of what ifs. A good leader is a planner. 
A good leader thinks in terms of what happens if this happens. What happens if things don't work out positively? What's the worst case scenario? Uh, What happens under this situation? What happens under that situation? And Abram has thought this through. What happens if I go back and somehow I have to interact with this perverted king of Sodom and he wants to get some of these possessions or he wants to... Uh, get the credit for this. He's clearly thought that through. Otherwise, why would he have sworn this oath to the Lord? He has prepared himself for that situation. And before he ever got there, the text says that he raised his hand to the Lord, and it is a... uh, uh, the, the verb there is a hyphial perfect. And the perfect tense in the Hebrew is used here in the perfective aspect referencing the the present results of a completed past action. He has thought through the circumstances that might occur, and he has made a decision, and so he uh, made an oath or vow to the Lord that he would not give up the spoils to the king of Sodom, but that he would give a certain amount to the uh, Lord God Most High, the possessor of the heavens and the earth. Now, in terms of application, we have an important principle here, and that is that we must learn to think, plan, and forecast situations that may come up in our lives and how we're going to handle them. Usually, we need to learn how to handle adversity. But often we need to know and think through what we're going to do if we have something positive happen, if suddenly God dumps prosperity in our laps. You see, uh, prosperity can destroy an individual, and that often happens with uh, these folks who win the lottery. All of a sudden they win a couple of million dollars or ten million dollars, and it absolutely destroys them. Next thing they know, every relative that ever thought they had a claim shows up on their door, and everybody wants a piece of the pie, and uh, they, they have all kinds of people coming along wanting them to buy this or buy that, and it quickly destroys them. They've never thought through how they're going to handle it, so that they have a plan and a purpose and a procedure. We need to think in terms of opportunities to witness. Have you ever taken the time just to sit down and say, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to go to work today and I'm going to go to lunch with somebody, how am I going to uh, work the gospel into the conversation? What are some things that we might talk about that I could easily turn into an opportunity to talk about spiritual things? What kinds of things uh, could I say or would I say? In other words, if you're not prepared to turn the conversation to the gospel, guess what won't happen? You won't turn the the conversation to the gospel. Also need to think in terms of opportunities to to give, opportunities to serve, opportunities to have uh, ministry in the local church. Think in terms of, am I prepared to do this? What could I do? What what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? We also need to, to understand that There are various threats to our spiritual life. Abram thought about that. He realized that this would be a threat to his spiritual life. It would be a threat to the glory of God. He wanted God to get all the credit for the victory, and he wasn't going to share it with the king of Sodom. We need to think in terms of various crises. Have you ever thought about the fact that your child might die tomorrow and how you're going to react and respond to that? 
What about your spouse, someone you love? I've seen parents over the years who have lost teenagers. Sudden automobile accident takes the life of their child. I have seen mature believers handle that. They are, of course, terribly grieved and hurt, and it takes time to get past that loss. I have seen others who were not in a position of spiritual strength at the time that it happened, and it's taken them a lot longer to get past it, and it's been quite devastating. When I was a young pastor, I was teaching a Bible class one night at my first church. I had been there about a month, and while I was candidating at that church, an old friend of mine was going to medical school. I had known this individual and his family for about 10 years, and his father passed away while I was uh, there candidating at the church. And so it was an opportunity to minister, and it was a great opportunity for celebration because his father had been a very strong believer, and everyone moved forward. And one night I just happened to use that as an illustration of somebody prepared to handle death and how well they handled it. And there was a couple sitting there that I barely knew that was down on the front row. It was a small classroom. There were only about 15 people there. And they just broke down in terrible, terrible tears. I mean, they were just uncontrollable. And... Twelve years earlier, their daughter had been uh, killed in a terrible automobile accident, 18 years old, and they still hadn't gotten over it. They were still at that third stage of grief as if it had happened just the week before because they had never been able to accept God's sovereign plan there because spiritually they weren't prepared for it when it happened. And let me tell you, if you're not prepared mentally, spiritually for any adversity, When it happens, it's too late to get prepared for it after it happens. You can't make up that time. You have to prepare yourself ahead of time. What are you going to do? Think it through in your head. Rehearse it over and over again. What doctrine are you going to apply? What promises are you going to claim? Uh, How are you going to think it through in terms of doctrinal rationales? We have to be prepared for these things ahead of time. And this is exactly what happens with Abram. He has made a vow to God, and he says that, and this vow is given in verses 23 and 24, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours. I won't take it no matter how insignificant it appears. I will take nothing that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich, lest you you take the opportunity to claim some role in this victory. And the principle here is that the plans of God and the purposes of God are not going to be funded by the unsaved and the unregenerate. We are going to always trust in the provision of the Lord through those that are saved and those that are part of the body of Christ. Verse 24 the only exception, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. In other words, those who went with him were going to take uh, of the spoils enough to, to survive and to take care of their basic needs. And he's going to provide for the logistics and the supplies for his allies, Honor, Eshkol, Mamre, and the other Amorites that went with them. And this brings us to the basic understanding of the importance of Melchizedek. And that is that Melchizedek sets a standard as the royal high priest, as a Gentile, 
who has the basis for a priesthood for all of the human race in contrast to the Levitical priesthood, which is only for Jews. And this then becomes the basis for the royal high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus it becomes a type of the kind of priesthood that every believer enjoys in the church age because we are all royal uh, high priests in the royal family of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this evening, to understand how you have worked in history in setting up this particular individual so that he could be used as a type of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we could come to a greater understanding of who he is and what he is doing in this dispensation. Father, we thank you that you have worked so much in, throughout all of history to provide this uh, this dispensation, the riches of the blessings that we have in this dispensation. And we pray that you would uh, continue to help us to understand these things and to understand what a rich heritage we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that has been provided for us in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.